My money. Money. I get money from you. Money in the bank. Young money. Money, 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 money. It's a rich man's world. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. World-renowned financial advisor and best-selling author Barry James Dyke will arm you with the truth. This is The Economic Warrior. Please note, the opinions expressed on this show are of the individuals who speak them, and not necessarily of Portsmouth Community Radio, its members, or board of trustees. Good afternoon. You listen to WSCA-FM uh 106.1 in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And John, um, do we have John Kay on the line from the UK? John, are you there? Yes, I am. Oh, God bless you, John. Well, thank you so much for uh, having us uh, today on on the show. We have a good audience across the states and actually and abroad. We're a big fan of your your book, in particular, your book, Other People's Money. So um, to our listeners, John Kay is one of Britain's leading economists. His work has been centered on the relationships between economics, finance, and business. His career has spanned academic uh, work in think tanks, business schools, company directorships, consultancies, and uh, investment companies. His main focus is on about writing on and his ability to speak uh, clearly. John, what don't you do? <laughs> I don't. I, write, I don't play baseball. I don't box, <laughs> uh, and I don't live in the United States. Apart from that. John, look, I'm a big fan of your, your book. You're, you're going to be in the guest for the next hour. If you want to leave earlier, and that, that's fine as well. But the, the thing today, John, is that one of the most important things in anyone's economic life is, is banking. And in your book, Other People's Money, by the way, uh, if people want to know more about John, go to his website, www.johnk.com. Most people today, John, think that banking, you know, where is people borrow money to, to build a building or buy an automobile or... or but it's only 10% of all businesses. Is that correct? It varies according to country, uh, right? But uh, most of what banks do is actually they lend to each other. And if you look at any bank's balance sheet, you'll discover that the main assets and liabilities, the main assets they have are liabilities of other financial institutions, and the main liabilities they have are asset institutions. To an extent that almost beggars believe what the finance sector does today is trades with itself. It's like casinos, casinos trading with other casinos. Is that kind of a good analogy? I don't know. Um, you could say that. Uh, I, I sometimes use the analogy when I talk to an audience of saying, suppose I locked the doors of this room and we spent the rest of the day or the rest of the evening exchanging bits of paper with each other. That's, in a sense, what is going on. And the point of that analogy is to say, look, the value of the bits of paper we walked out with would be very much the same as the value of the bits of paper we walked in with. <laughs> it's just they might be distributed differently. These banks are really trading amongst themselves. How much benefit does this trading amongst people with other pieces of white paper, if you will, how much does it benefit society as a whole? I think taken as a whole, very little. There's been argument about that, and there was a key argument, uh, as you know, before the 2008 crisis. There was a famous conference at Jackson Hole, in which uh, there were two camps. One, one was a, uh, 
a man who was chief economist at the International Monetary Fund at the time called Raghu Rajan. And the other much larger camp was led by Alan Greenspan and Ben Bernanke and Larry Summers and the like. And what the latter group argued was that what was happening in the banking system was that by trade, all this trading was spreading risk more effectively, enabling banks to hold more diversified portfolio. Rajan pointed out that what they were doing was principally trading with each themselves, that the people who were selling the paper were pretty much the same institutions as the ones who were buying it. And he argued that actually what was going on was people were um, taking on what, what people know in the business as long-tail risk, by yep. which I mean a low probability of something nasty happening in return for, <laughs> in return for a little bit today. Uh, and, uh, well, we know who was right in the end. Yeah. We also know, and this is something I tell students when I talk about this, that it's not very important to be right. Rajan was pushed out of his job at the IMF, while Greenspan, Bernanke, uh, well, Greenspan was about to retire, but, but Bernanke, Tim Geithner, Larry Summers, the people on the other side, went on to even better and more elevated positions. Yeah, Much better as Keynes said a long time uh, to be conventionally wrong uh, than to be unconventionally right. Yeah. So, so John, let me ask you something. You're a brave guy. I, 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 I love your research, and I know I've been, I send you some of my work, and I research this stuff too. Um, it, but you have a good stature. I mean, isn't your research almost welcome, like as as much as like a skunk at a summer picnic? Yep, that's right. I haven't made a lot of, right. I haven't made a lot of friends in the financial sector, although there's an interesting contrast there. Um, I certainly haven't done that in the banking sector, but the asset management sector. A lot of people there uh, react in the way saying, you know, I wish more people were were saying and acknowledging the kind of things you're saying. I think a lot of people in asset management would like to be doing a different and better job to the one they are doing, getting much more engaged with companies and the housing market and infrastructure projects and things. The things that the, uh, the finance system really ought to exist in order to facilitate, rather than this business of um, chasing each other's tails. Yeah, it, it's just, it seems to be trading and more trading and more trading amongst themselves. Um, you know, the, as you say in your book, the industry talks to itself, it trades with itself, and it judges itself. I mean, they're kind of like the, the end-all, be-all. And, and, I, and I, when I announced this out to my fan base, John, I, it's kind of created a financial potter's bill out of, right out of a Frank, Frank Capra's um, uh, movie, uh, it's, a, it's a Wonderful Life. It, uh, a, but it, yeah, that's right. As I say in the book, I don't think Capra could ever have imagined that Pottersville would actually come into existence, <laughs> but I'm afraid it did. But the thing with the banks, and I, John, maybe you can give an update on this. Now, these banks tra tra traded with reckless abandon because of the implicit guarantees they got from financial institutions, whether it be in the U.S. and the U.K. They ended up getting bailed out when the blew up in the U.K. was the Royal Bank of Scotland, and it actually... Their bank is located here in New England. It's called Citizens Bank. The RBS, I, I believe, is still what, 71% owned by the uh, 
the the UK taxpayer is that correct? Majority owned by the UK government, actually, which would desperately like to be rid of it, but can't. Uh, 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 well, certainly can't find buyers that are priced that would come close to giving the government its money back. And it actually wouldn't be very easy to find buyers for its operations at all, even now. Are they still the banks? I mean, you're in the UK, and I guess Lloyd's has a part of the still part owned by the taxpayer. Are they still kind of operating like casinos? Well, they've changed their activities a bit. Uh, and while we move from financial crisis to financial crisis, the next crisis is never the same as the crisis, uh, the last crisis. Yeah. Well, the main driver of the 2008 crisis was really the creation of complex instruments based on debt securities. Now, people aren't doing that on that scale again. But... The 2008 crisis was only the latest in a series of crises. Before it, we'd had the Asian and emerging market debt crisis of the mid-1990s, which had the new economy boom and bust round about the turn of the century. And then we had that 2008 crisis, which was very much about um, credit expansion through complex securities. Every crisis is in its immediate form different. And yet the underlying mechanisms behind these crises are really always much the same. Well, you know, what happens is there's, a, there's often some genuine economic development, you know, that in the 1990s, a lot, of, uh, a lot of countries were, as it were, emerging markets. They were uh, adopting more market-based economies, and that was stimulating their economic growth. In the late 90s, uh, the internet really was starting to change business life. Mm -hmm. And there was some argument for extension of credit in the way that happened in 2003 through 2008, though nothing like on the scale that actually happened during that period. Yep. So there's some genuine economic development underlying things. Then, and people who are early in spotting these developments tend to make money out of it. But then what happens in financial markets is that they behave like herds. People pile in Ooh. these activities, these sectors. And the result of that in all the areas I was describing was that you got serious asset mispricing, which was uh, eventually corrected. Uh, but the consequences of the correction were uh, very serious for the financial system. Governments of the world then came in, pumped a load of public money into, into trying to keep the thing going. Uh, and uh, that basically provided the fuel for the next crisis. In Europe, as you know, we have this ongoing Eurozone crisis, and if you ask what happened there, people believe that when we created the Euro, we were making uh, the Greek economy and the Italian economy rather more like the German economy. Yeah. There was some truth in that, although not very much, but it meant that interest rates in Germany and Greece converged so that uh, in 2007, the Greek government was only borrowing, was able to borrow at only a fraction above the cost at which the German government could borrow. And then people stood back for a moment as the crisis hit and wondered what on earth have they done? And we've had a Greek and indeed Italian and other Southern European problem ever since. A problem which actually we're very unwilling to face up to. People in Europe talk, talk about it as kicking the can down the road. Politicians hope that uh, uh, if they 
if they try to ignore the problem, at least it won't blow up on uh, while they're in power. You know, John, um, I, um, we're, we're, by the way, we have to take a, a break to keep us legal around 20 minutes past the hour, then we're going to ask you to stay on. Um, but um, it, this is great information. Um, but one of the things which kind of just, and I've been researching this myself, is that um, all the the best and the brightest minds, it seems they're going to, uh, you know, the, all the folks from, you know, the Harvards and the, the Oxfords and, um, and the UK, or they seem to either go be going to Wall Street or the city of London. Is, is that, is, is that true? Is that kind of sad? Uh, it's true and it's still true. Um, it's funny, I'm sitting talking to you from Oxford as it happens this, uh, <laughs> this, this evening in, in European time. Uh, I'm sitting here in Oxford, and when I first started teaching in Oxford, which was way back <clears throat> in the 1970s, very few Oxford students went into the city. And the ones who did go into the city were typically people who were not necessarily all that bright, but were socially well, rather well-connected. It's a bit like the, the paradox, which I described at the beginning of my book, that when I was at school in Edinburgh in the 1960s, the people who went into the people who joined the Royal Bank of Scotland then were the people that uh, in my class who weren't getting going to get good enough grades yeah. to go on to good universities. They joined the Bank of Scotland, the Royal Bank of Scotland, at seventeen or eighteen, and expected to spend their lives working there. The odd thing that these these not very bright people actually ran the bank a lot better <coughs> than the many the smarter people who. Were them a couple of decades later. But as I say, when I started teaching in Oxford in the 1970s, uh, very few of my students took any interest in the possibility of careers in the city. But by the 1980s, you know, they were falling over themselves to try and get internships, investment banks in the city. And uh, you know, that's been the destination of choice for a high proportion of the brightest students at Oxford ever since. And I sometimes ask myself, what's the opportunity cost? You know, what might some of these people have done if they hadn't gone into these particular careers? Because a lot of them are very bright people. And, of course, a lot of them have made a lot of money out of, uh, out of their city careers. You know, but if you look at all great civilizations, John, what made the British Empire great or the U.S. Empire or so many empires have been highly value-added manufactured goods and services and this other stuff of you know just trading currencies or whatever doesn't really seem to add too much to just looking when you look at it i mean i'm a capitalist at heart and what i love about your writing is and i and i highly recommend people pick up uh, john's book for if you want to have a book to understand at christmas why your money is being gambled with um it all kind of started with regulation q that i call it like the the age of financial engineering and it kind of started with Regulation Q, where banks transferred the money to the UK and so on. Could you explain people how that worked? Yes, and essentially banks uh, in the US were uh, unable to pay, were prohibited from paying interest on, uh, on current accounts. Uh, and a way of circumventing that, uh, but they could pay interest to banks. So in effect, a way of circumventing that was that large companies that did it in the first instance. You placed your money with a, a European bank, which then lent it back to the American bank. So the reality was, in effect, uh, that uh, 
the money left the, the United States, never let, never in reality left the United States. <laughs> uh, but you circumvented this particular regulation by routing it mostly through, through London. So London became the center of what was then known as the euro-dollar market. And this was um, one of the first large pieces of internationalization of the global financial system, certainly the modern internationalization. And it was one of the things that actually made London a center of some of this global activity. Yeah. And uh, that all became much bigger when, um, in, in the 1970s, uh, there was the oil crisis, which meant that uh, uh, oil-producing countries, particularly in the Middle East, made huge surpluses by selling oil to the West. And in truth, they had far more money than they could in the short term spend. So what they did was they recruited, they routed that back to London and the United States. And that was how the massive global capital flows that we now see came in. That was how it all began. It, yeah. Uh, and that, these were the origins of what I described in the book as the era of financialization. Yeah. Again, uh, you're listening to WSCA in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Uh, I have um, John Kay on the line from the UK. But then, John, we have, I call it the, almost like the financial engineering age. And then it all started with asset-backed s- securities and Lou Ranieri. Could you tell our audience how, this is how the mortgage securities all started. How did that work? Yeah, uh, Lou Ranieri was uh, at Solomon Brothers in the 1980s. And you, you can find a lot of this story in Michael Lewis's first book, uh, Liar's Poker, probably yeah. actually his best book. It's, it is very funny and is a very good exposition of what was happening in, uh, in financial markets at the time. But Lou Ranieri was a guy at uh, Solomon Brothers who basically invented the mortgage-backed security, which meant that you took a package of mortgages, and instead of as happened in the old days, the thrift or um, in Britain, the building society, or different names for these institutions in different countries, instead of the lender who provided home finance, holding the mortgage on the balance sheet until the borrower repaid, they could sell these mortgages on to other people in packages. Now, initially, that was largely about avoiding regulation, too, that there were different backing requirements for a security that was a package of mortgages from the capital requirements that there were for a mortgage itself. But as has so often happened in the financial system. They overdo it. It was an activity that took on a life of its own. <laughs> and it grew to be a huge market in these mortgage-backed securities and indeed in still more complicated securities based on them. So there were what were called collateralized debt obligations, uh, and then there were what people called CDO squared, which were <laughs> packages of collateralized debt obligations, and so on. You can even take that to almost infinite extremes. And so, now, but the thing which troubles me, uh, John, and I don't know if you're watching it, is that... Um, it seems to be that some of this happening again. I mean, they're they're repackaging, you know, auto loans in the in the U.S. They're uh, student private student loans for sure, and they're mortgage backed securities. It seems to be in, in many ways, John, business as usual. Does that seem to be correct? I think there's a lot in that. Uh, 
But in truth, as I said earlier, people don't make exactly the same mistakes yeah. again. Yeah. So, so this will never reach the heights of stupidity and irresponsibility uh, that it did way back in 2006, 2007. Uh, on the other hand, there is... Um, the truth is, there, there are some good reasons having these kind of securities. Most of these yep. financial innovations actually start with some genuine underlying volume and purpose. Uh-huh. There's a tendency in the financial sector to take every innovation to extremes and far beyond the point at which it's serving a useful purpose. They, they overdo it. You know, it's just they, they, it seems like they can't have too much of a good thing, John. Um, um, but then there's been a, there's been two seismic shifts, and, I, and I, so I want people because what we're trying to I'm trying to promote John is people to wake up and 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 create their own financial well being and take you know um, back their own financial lives. Um, but there's been two big shifts where the 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 risk financial investment risk all the economic risk if you will have been taken from the institution and shifted onto the retail investor. But um, I think. Um, I think there was a, uh, there was essentially, and and I agree with you. There's two major shifts. We're, first was when investment banks went from being partnerships, where the owners ha- actually had some skin in the game, if you will, from going to public companies. Is that one one major major yeah. shift? Uh, that was a very important part of the shift, and uh, uh, you know, of course, what the first big bank, uh, uh, big investment bank, to make that shift. It was Lehman, wasn't it? A yeah. company called Lehman Brothers, <laughs> which did it in the 1980s. And in fact, Lehman Brothers came pretty close to going under very soon after that, in 1984. <laughs> uh, but they were rescued then, ultimately by American Express, floated out as an independent business, and we all know what happened to that. Now, but the other thing too, John, is that and I, when I was growing up as, as a child, I remember most people used to they'd have individual stocks and so forth, and uh, uh, but people would have guaranteed pensions, and but for the most part, individuals would you know with the shareholders of uh, uh, of stocks. Um, but essentially, old time pensions have gone out the door, um, and what has happened is that the uh, the the money, the funds now, individual ownership is actually down, but. It's been essentially the the rise of the I call it the asset management industrial complex. The asset managers, whether it be in the U.S. or the U.K., have have really controlled the money now. So, the investment banks in Wall Street and the City of London they have less few people they have less people to deal with because the asset managers control the ca- the cash flow. Is that correct? Uh, well, that that is right. And that makes you wonder, we've been talking about the volume of trading within the sector that's going on. It makes you wonder what the rationale, even more, what the rationale for this kind of volume of trading is. The stock markets we're all familiar with basically came into being back in the middle of the 19th century. In the first instance, to finance railroads. And if you think about a a railroad or a railway, as we in Britain call it, uh, it's a very capital-intensive project. But also the capital is very specific to that particular activity. If you build a railroad track, there's not very much you can do except run run a train on it. Uh-huh. So the capital was large and it was specific to the activity. And that meant, and the way in which it was raised was you, you raised it in relatively modest amounts from large numbers of reasonably well-off individuals. 
and the stock market existed to provide a, a secondary market, a degree of liquidity for these kinds of investors. Now, actually, the, that model was then developed for the big manufacturing corporations that came into being in the first part of the, the 20th century. Uh, breweries, automobile plants, steelworks, petrochemical plants, and the like. Again, all of them capital-intensive activity-specific businesses. Now, if you look at modern business, it isn't like that anymore at all. No, it's not. You know, the largest companies in the U.S. today, by market value, are um, Apple and Alphabet, which is the holding company for Google. Mm -hmm. And they have market values of between $500 and $600 billion. And their total actual operating assets are between 20 and $30 billion, you know, 5% of the total market cap of the company. They have loads of cash. Now, that's something that's got a lot of attention in the United States because although these are American companies, most of the cash they hold is actually cash which has been earned overseas and is today held offshore, which, um, you, well, you know there's quite a lot of discussion about the implications of that. Repatriating the cash. Uh, right? For the U.S. Treasury and the U.S. tax code and possibilities of rescuing that. But that's, in a sense, a distraction from the main point. The main point is that these companies don't have very much capital uh, employed in their business. And more than that, the capital they do have is actually typically offices and shops and things which are not very specific, needn't be specific to their business. Typically, they aren't owned by these businesses. Uh, so that uh, that's another reason why they're much less capital intensive. I thought it was quite funny to discover that Apple's flagship store in Europe, which is in Regent Street in the centre of London. Yeah. Uh, if you ask who owns it, it's not Apple. It's the Queen of England and the Norwegian oil fund. Uh, <laughs> the Queen may be the richest woman in England and the Norwegian oil fund is actually the richest, um, uh, the biggest investment fund in the world. Uh, that's where the ownership lies. And more than that, the savings we have are, as you described, no longer primarily individuals owning stocks. They're institutionalized through the asset managers you were describing, uh, the Black Rocks, the Fidelities, the Capitals, and so on of the world. The implication of all of that, I think, is that there's actually less need for the active financial markets we have. And yet, at the same time, the scale and scope and volume of trading in these financial markets has increased very dramatically. Yeah. Now, now, John, th but the thing is, is the um, and this is the title of your book, but all the all the it's all the speculation, all this buying and selling company shares, whatever. It's always done with other people's money. And it seems to be whether it be retail uh, investors in the U.S., the U.K., which mutual funds and um, and then the other large pools of money are, as you know, are the pension funds, you know, the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund. Uh, you know, all these other uh, sovereign wealth funds and so on. Um, but um, I've researched, John, the the research uh, of the, the actual performance of actively traded mutual funds in the U.S., and it, it doesn't look very good at all. But I noticed that the uh, the FSA, the Financial Con Conduct Authority in the U.K., they just, I don't know if you've seen this new study that they did, John. Yeah, they've just done a big asset management industry study. Yeah, and and that doesn't that doesn't speak too well about it. I guess there's roughly uh, 
I couldn't believe there's roughly 8.6 trillion U.S. Uh, uh, money being managed by 1,800 uh, plus uh, fund managers. 10, 10% of them control 47% of the market. And um, they have enormous profit margins, John. I, I didn't even know that the gross profit margins are 34 to 36% on these companies. But they've done a really, they've been, uh, I, as I say, they're poor stewards. They really don't look out for people's money. Am I correct? Um, you are. I mean, what that study reveals, which is the same as people have found in the United States, is that taken as a whole, actively managed, uh, actively managed mutual funds don't outperform the market. They underperform it typically by the amount of the fees they charge. And if you think about it, it's almost inevitable that that's going to be so because these people dominate the market. Uh, they, um, so that in aggregate, they can only make profits at each other's expense. And from time to time, some of them do. But there's not much evidence uh, that people are able to perform consistently better than other people. And you know, John, I, 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 it, it's um, one of the things which is funny. You know, you look at the, the UK and the US and there's so many similarities. Um, and But these actively managed funds, the, this, this study, and I read the study, it says that... Uh, uh, the British, uh, uh, they simply bury, I call them, they bury the dead, you know, the funds that don't perform. Out of the equity funds, uh, according to the study, uh, all the people in, the, in these actively managed funds in 2006, uh, only half were operating in 2016. So they essentially, they either, they either merge them out of existence, they, uh, they, they, they shut them down. And Morningstar did a, a um, study uh, looking at funds started in 1986, 525 large mutual funds, equity mutual funds. And after a 20, 30-year period, only 50% of them are survived, John. So the mortality is incredible with these things. Yeah, and it's exactly the phenomenon you describe of burying the dead. Uh, people call it survivor bias <laughs> uh, in all of this. The, the, the population you observe uh, is not a random selection of the population from which you started, so that actually, if you look at historic performance, it looks better than it actually is, because the worst performing funds have disappeared from your sample. Yes, so it's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's something. Now, um, I've always liked the analogy of you see these uh, religious pictures of people who prayed for salvation to the Lord <laughs> and were saved. You don't see many pictures of people who prayed for salvation and weren't saved. Now, John, um, l let me ask a question because you're in the UK. Um, I'm, I'm looking here. I'm an outsider from the US, but uh, I've, tra I've traveled to Europe a good amount. And uh, I look at a lot of these European banks. You look at the Italians. They're zombies right now, kept alive by, uh, uh, by uh, you know, you look at the Italian banks. I don't know what's going to happen there. Um, uh, and and, and um, uh, but, but you know the funny thing, and then I you know the bank I love to pick on is Deutsche Bank. Um, I don't know. There's so much leverage in the system, John. Do people? Could you explain you know how leveraged these banks are, like Deutsche Bank? If I have to pick on a bank, I'll pick on them because the IMF and everyone else has. Yeah, I mean Deutsche Bank is is, is probably the most well it is the most extreme case. 
Deutsche Bank and JP Morgan are the organizations in the world with the largest derivatives exposure. Now, in the total derivative exposure of all uh, traders and derivative markets today is something around $600 trillion. $600 trillion. Now, that's just an unimaginable number. It's actually two or three times the total value of, um, of all the assets in the world. And there are two institutions that account for getting on for 10% of that total. One of them is J.P. Morgan, and the other one is Deutsche Bank. Now, J.P. Morgan is actually a much sounder institution than Deutsche Bank is, although it, too, is fantastically leveraged. But uh, Deutsche Bank has this kind of exposure on a, a capital base, which is of the order of... Um, uh, uh, billion. So it's leveraged. One way of looking at its leverage is to say it's something like a thousand to one. Oh my God. Now, I don't think I don't think either of these organisations, or certainly not not Deutsche Bank, could exist, could trade on this kind of scale if people didn't in markets didn't assume that the German government basically stands behind it. And I don't think anyone really has much doubt that that's true, that the German government and the European Central Bank would not let Deutsche Bank default uh, or go under. You know, one of the things which I try to do on the show is, you know, kind of, I, I, we call the old, we're here in New England, and we, I, I kind of promote Yankee thrift, staying out of debt, all this stuff, uh, which I think, you know, the basics, if you will, which is, uh, I think everyone knows, um, which is good for, you know, uh, I guess organic um, uh, health, if you will, financial health. But people do not um, realize um, how much financial engineering is going on today. Um, and it's, uh, you call it, as you call it in the UK, leverage, or we call it leverage or debt, okay? It's, um, it's incredible. Um, you call it leverage. We, we used to call it gearing, actually. So <laughs> okay. We've more or less taken on board the American world. Oh, okay, you used to call it gearing, okay? So... Um, but the thing is, is that I and I've because of the the, the way the debt, you know, the banks are subsidized because interest, uh, you know, because of the interest deduction, borrowing money is always deductible. So essentially, everyone gets a you know write off the banks primarily. So it's it's crazy in that um, these bank uh, these companies like Apple didn't they borrow like seventeen billion dollars. To pay a dividend? Yeah, they did, they did. And let me explain why Apple borrowed $17 billion. Um, it seems extraordinary. Because Apple's cash pile <laughs> is about $200 billion. It's the largest cash pile that any company anywhere in the world has ever accumulated. Uh, but because Apple is a, a multinational company selling products around the world, much of that profit has been accumulated outside the United States. Now, U.S. tax law means uh, that they would be liable to U.S. tax if they remitted these profits to the United States, so they don't. But Apple was under pressure to pay a dividend to its shareholders. Most of its shareholders live in the United States. The only way Apple can pay a dividend to them is out of money which it has in the U.S. So it borrowed the money, and given how profitable Apple is and how much money there is on its balance sheet. It's not very hard for Apple to borrow, so they borrowed money, in effect, to pay dividends to shareholders. 
Yeah, so... Uh, the last thing they were doing was borrowing money because they needed it in the business. Yeah, and it's it's tax-subsidized by the U.S. taxpayer, and I, I'm assuming... I'm not, not familiar with the British tax law as much. I mean, I've looked at British tax returns, I get really confused, but, uh, but I'm assuming there's the same... Uh, the encouragement of debt, is it the same deductibility, John, as it, as, as it is in the U.K., as it is in the U.S.? Um, uh, mostly it is. It is for corporations. Uh, but one big difference is in the U.S., you still have tax deductibility for loans you take out for home purchase. In Britain, and now in most European countries, you don't. Yeah, you don't have that in Canada, but... But one of the things, John, which which I'd, I'd love to talk to you in, uh, over a drink or something like that sometime, um, um, and, I, and I've been studying... I look uh, forward to getting to Portland. Okay, yeah, it'd be great, uh, or I'll come over to see you. Um, John, the, um, you know, I've been studying I, private equity, and this is one of the things I'm trying to, you know, one of the, uh, and I, I've been kind of my rant and rave on it, and it's, and as you know, John, because of, uh, central banks and the and the uh, the Federal Reserve and the Bank of Japan keeping rates down to zero. Um, the private equity, or uh, I don't know, is that what you call it over in the UK? Um, that whole business model it's just incredibly exploded. And so you got um, and but one of the the things which I couldn't believe because so the because it's massive use of debts. But what, one thing the private equity industry uses, and, and I and I believe in the UK and the US, it is what is called payment in kind notes. I know what they are, but yeah. could you tell our, the audience right. what these things uh, are? What payment in kind notes are is uh, uh, interest. There's, there's securities on which you don't actually pay the interest, <laughs> uh, but you roll it up, and they tend to have two characteristics. One is rolling up the interest. So you don't have to pay anything. The other is that the quality of the credit deteriorates. Uh, the, 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 the effective rate of interest on the security increases. Uh, so that they're um, effectively, um, if things go well, uh, these kind of securities pay off. But actually, mostly they are issued, which is uh, by, by companies that would be struggling to pay the interest on a normal security. So, of course, when things start going badly, it's not just you struggle to meet the liabilities, it's that the liabilities themselves increase. Uh, they're not things any sensible person would uh, Warren Buffett, as he often did, put his finger on the problem quite frankly when he said, the thing is, it's impossible to default on a promise to pay, pay nothing. nothing. <laughs> now, but the thing is, John, what, what, what I did this research, and I... You're familiar with the decap, uh, dividend recaps, which are big in the UK and the US, where these private equity financiers, they essentially, they re-lever the balance sheet or add a second mortgage onto the corporate balance sheet to extract a dividend, and they fund them with pick notes. Can you believe that? Yeah. It's, no, um, the strange thing about the private equity world is that it's best private equity can work extremely well. Yeah. Uh, you have investors who are taking a keen interest in the company in which their money is invested or know a great deal about it, and have an incentive to develop it over the long term. Uh, that's how private equity can sometimes be. Uh, but often, private equity is just trying to uh, use a combination of financial engineering 
and deferring necessary investment and um, uh, deferring necessary investment in order to ramp up earnings per share in the short term with the hope that you can flip the, the company back onto a public market in three to five years. At its best, private equity is, is very, very good. And I think private equity run by responsible, committed asset managers should be a big part of the future of this industry. But private equity, as a lot of it has become over the last couple of decades, is simply destructive of the real value in corporations. Yeah, I, I, it's just, um, yeah, there is, you know, there are some major success stories, but um, so much of it now it just seems to be engineering and, um, uh, you know, yeah. and I've done the research, John, I, I found there's been over, oh, gee whiz, at least 200 uh, major bankruptcies, um, I guess in the UK called bankruptcies administration, is that co the correct uh, term? Um, uh, that, well, we, we, we do have bankruptcies, we're bankruptcy for individuals, but we call it administration for companies. Okay. It's so, a bit like your chapter 11, in fact, our administration procedure. So, and if, if companies don't come out of administration, and mostly they don't, then they go into liquidation. That's our terminology. Yeah, so, but it, it's really no big deal, John, because uh, if they do go to bankruptcy or administration, as you call it in the UK, the general partners with the private equity guys, they don't have a lot of skin in the game. And people say, well, I don't know what I've ever heard of a, a private equity company going public or going bankrupt. And I ever heard, said, you ever heard of uh, Chrysler Motors or... Uh, uh, General Motors uh, Finance, which is now Allied Bank, and um, and and there's been uh, lots more of them as well. Um, but that's that's another uh, that's another story. Uh, but John, the story there of the survivor bias we were talking about earlier that uh, uh, people who people in private equity were not very good at it uh, disappear, which is why the overall performance looks uh, looks better than it really is. But John, we're, we still seem to be really, it's, this is all even very, it's incredibly complex, uh, even for me. And it, when you look at a company like um, Citigroup, I think, and I, I get this from your book, that Citigroup in 2005 was, I think, one of the most profitable companies in the world ever. Um, yeah. And, um, uh, and they were involved in all this stuff. And then by 2008, they were essentially on, on death's doorstep. Yeah, and that tells us there's something basically wrong with the way we account. We do accounting for banks. Uh, you know, it's impossible that you can be uh, the most profitable company in the world in one year <laughs> and uh, on death's door a couple of years later. The most extreme case I found was a bank called Allied Irish Bank. Uh, sorry, Anglo-Irish Bank. And that company reported steadily increasing profits year by year, quarter by quarter, until it, until it went past. You know, it's, it's, it's incredible. Now, but the thing is, is that, you know, the funny thing which I found, John, because we're coming near the end of our show, is that, um, and I, I even saw this, I, who was the guy running uh, RBS? Uh, they call, call him Fred the Shred Goodwin. Fred Goodwin. Fred, yeah, Fred, they call him the Shred. Because Fred I, the Shred. Yeah, Fred the Shred. Name, yeah. yeah, and... Uh, when uh, when when Fred the Shred left uh, RBS, uh, he walked out the door with a, a pension, annual pension, a guaranteed annuity, if you will. I think for something like a million or million six uh, U.S. dollars a year. So a lot of the uh, executive insiders, and I sent you a copy of my latest book, uh, 
the irony is these executives, um, although they gamble with other people's money, when it comes to their own money, they like to, um, they, want, they want a sure thing. You know, you know, you call it the final pension scheme, um, or we call them defined benefits here. And uh, so it's amazing. So you have this, this incredible dichotomy, you know, uh, uh, John, where you have the retail investors that has all this risk, and then you have the executives with, with the sure thing. And, um, you know, and, um, but, um, and by the way, and, and the best way to, to find out more about uh, you, John, is going to www.johnk.com. And, you know, John, we're getting, to, you know, to the end of the show, but, um, and it's been grateful. Let's keep in touch. Um, what can you suggest for individual investors, retail uh, folks, as a way to improve their financial lives going forward? I'm glad you asked that, Barry, because I've just um, written a book on that. We've actually just published it in the UA, in the UK. I'm hoping to do an American version next year, which is how to take control of your own finances. And there are basically, I think, three fundamental principles. One is to say that the, the lowest risk way of increasing the returns you make is to pay less to the financial services industry, to avoid paying uh, ma uh, management charges other than nominal you know, fund administration charges. The second is to be contrarian, to uh, be very skeptical about the conventional wisdom of the financial services industry. Amen. And the third is to minimize risk by diversifying. And one of the mistakes people make, I think, is to think that an index portfolio is diverse. It's not. No, you need not. to look more carefully Amen. what you're actually putting your money in. But these are, these are my three core principles. Uh, pay less, uh, be contrarian, diversify. Yeah, and um, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, John, And um, because, uh, you know, but I, I sometimes I feel your work and my work, we're almost like BBs against a battleship. Uh, I mean, the... Uh, I think uh, the, the uh, Bain Capital um, or the Boston Consulting Group, one of those two, uh, uh, said that the asset management uh, industry made uh, roughly about a hundred billion dollars uh, U.S. in 2015. Um, so uh, they're not going to really, um, uh, as they say, our, our research is kind of like we're well as welcome as skunks, skunks at a picnic, and um, you know. Uh, but I, you know, I kind of look at it a more holistic approach, John. My my thing is, is that you really should be, you know, investing in your faith first, then then your your family. Obviously, that's the most important thing to most people. Your friends, no one does this on their own. I I'm a big believer in physical fitness, and then the last thing is finances. But um, this is kind of my take. Um, you're listening to WSCA FM uh, 106.1 in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and on the line we have John Kay from uh, St. John's College in at, at Oxford University in England, and um, uh, it's been a tremendous um, uh, uh, amount of gratitude, John, for having us today. We'd like to have you on sometime because you're uh, you just keep pushing back the frontiers of ignorance. Um, we're big. I'm a big fan of yours. And folks, uh, buy uh, John's uh, "Other People's Money" uh, book. And is that going to be launched in the U.S., John? Uh, well, "Other People's Money" is out in the U.S. Yeah, but the, another uh, new book. My, my other book, "The Long and the Short of It." I hope that'll be out in the or a book. We'll have to Americanize it because the thing about personal investment is it it kind of 
the the options differ a bit depending on what country you're in. But I'm hoping we'll have an American version of that in, sometime in 2017. Yeah. All right. Well, well, John, that'd be great. And if you need, need some, uh, some uh, someone on the ground who over here knows this stuff, uh, uh, be happy to talk to you, uh, folks. For the folks listeners out there, you can look at uh, my website www.barryjamesdyke.com and. Um, uh, because I've actually uh, been communicating with Jack Bogle, the founder of Vanguard, about some of this research. So keep up, um, keep up the good work, uh, John, and keep pushing back the frontiers of ignorance. And let's keep in touch. And God bless you, and a Merry Christmas. Thanks, Barry, and the same to you and your listeners. God bless. Bye-bye. This has been The Economic Warrior with your host, Barry James Dyke. Broadcast live at WSCA Portsmouth Community Radio. Engineered by Phil Kleiger. If you have any questions about today's show or need an ally in conquering the battleground of finance, contact the warrior himself at barryjamesdyke.com. Who are the warriors?